0: Joseph, whose wife was Mary, of whom was born, it's in the passive voice, Jesus, the Messiah. But then they use a Greek word, which is Christ. And I'm not sure if you know that. But when we say Jesus Christ, it's just a Greek word that means anointed one. And the Old Testament word for anointed one is Messiah. And Jesus, he is, in Greek, he's the Christos, he's the Christ. To the Old Testament, he's the Messiah, he's the Messiah, he's the foretold one. And anyone who read that claim, who knew their Old Testament would say, whoa, that's the first line of your claim about Jesus? I'm interested. And you should know, he wasn't the first person to ever claim to be Messiah. There were other messiahs in the day. In fact, there were a number of them. There, was, uh, there, there were all kinds of claims, and I think even dozens in the years surrounding Jesus' life. But the funny thing about history is that it doesn't record them. We know something about the fact that there were messiahs. We don't know hardly any of their names because all of them said, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Son of God, I'm here to save you. They died, then their followers, 10, 12, 15 people, disbanded and that was it. But we have to do justice to a historical reality that there were a group of people who claimed that Jesus was the messiah And that this figure, Jesus, lived, history records his life, and he said he was the Messiah, Son of God, and God incarnate, and then he died. And you can imagine, you're following Jesus, right? And he dies, and you get discouraged, and you think, I am such a butthead. I can't believe I fell for whatever cult. Like, do people who are in cults know they're in cults? I don't know. I've never been in a cult, at least I think. Or are we? I don't know. (laughs) This is the Matrix. So like so like you don't know and so all of a sudden these people are waking up going Jesus died and am i one of those stupid people who fell for his stupid promises and somehow all of the the healings and all of the words that seemed to just penetrate my heart maybe they were all lies and stupid and yet different than any messiah in human history from the jewish people with the family line that was pretty notable to say i think this guy's the real deal they shot out of the city of jerusalem Claiming to have an Evangelion in the Greek, claiming to have a good news message about the fact that he lived, he changed our lives, he died, but he resurrected. And so whatever you think about Jesus, we have this weird little thorn in our side, a little pebble in your shoe to say, if I don't think Jesus is real then why the heck did all of these people leave this city at the exact same time with an Evangelion, a good news message that said he is the real deal? This story is true. And that's what Matthew is telling you. You have to do business with just that reality. And a similar point that Matthew will bring up eventually as we read in Matthew is something like this. Think of all of the people in human history who claim to be God. Like the most notable people who said, I am God, I'm here to save you. Would you say that Jesus is probably on that list? He's the most visible person who claimed to be God. Do you know any of these other people? Like maybe a few, like David Koresh or like some other cult leaders, right? Now think on your other hand, the top five people who have changed the world for the good in human history. Like, I don't know, Oprah, (laughs) who else would you put on that list? Would you argue that Jesus is on that list? Jesus is the only figure who's on both of those lists. The only person in human history who said, I am God. Your life will be made right when you worship me. If you become all about me, you'll have the joy that you need. You'll have the security that you need. You'll have a future. You'll have heaven. You'll have a relationship with God. And he changed the world for the better. Now, that does not prove on a logical level that everything Jesus says or everything Matthew says is true. But it means you have to pay attention to the claims. You would not be intellectually honest if you did not read verse one, especially as a first century reader, and say, I have to read the rest of the book. Because if you pass on this information, you might be missing out on the greatest thing to ever happen to your life. It doesn't prove that it's true, but it means you have to pay attention. The claim here is that Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament promised for centuries and centuries and now revealed in the person of jesus christ secondly jesus is the one who reigns He's the messiah he's son of david and if you look at his kingdom and what else is revealed in matthew chapter one you see that jesus came to be a weird kind of king he's an unlikely king with an upside down kingdom An unlikely person to be king with the kind of values that are totally countercultural from the day and even in our society today. In Matthew 1.1, it says that he is the son of David. I want to pause and also mention that if you read the original language of the Gospel of Matthew, just like the other Gospels, it doesn't start out with once upon a time. And it doesn't even start out with the title, the Gospel of Matthew. The title in the original text for the Gospel of Matthew is just according to Matthew." Because this is just an account that he's saying, this is my account, according to me. I bet he wrote his name, because you don't put me on the, in the Greek. But you would say, like, this is Matthew's account of the life of Jesus. And then he starts and says, this guy is the son of David. Well, what do we know about David? He's the, the highest king, he's the greatest king of Israel to date. And we just went through a series at Ambassador about the life of David, so we know something about his life. He's the hero. He's the warrior. He's the guy who strung together enough righteous days in his life to be called a great and righteous king for a time. And so he's known by all the first century readers of the Old Testament to be the person that you would want in your genealogy. And that's exactly what's going on here. Matthew starts the gospel and says, the biggest name in Israel's history, is in this guy's genealogy. In the time, your genealogy was like a resume. And I'm sure some of you have had the experience of putting together a resume, and you try and think, like, what's the most advantageous way I can word my pedigree? or my accomplishments. Now we don't think of genealogies being a resume for us because we live in an individualistic culture. So our resume is a one sheet uh, or a two page document that lists all of our individual achievements. That's what you need for a job. But in the first century, and even in other cultures in the world where your family is more uh, important to the connections that you have, or your family being known as a, a morally righteous religious uh, family, that, that's your pedigree. So in the first century, it makes sense that Matthew would start his gospel by saying, check out this guy's genealogy, and he first mentions David. Um, Most of us pad our resume. Most of us put into our resume things that are not true of ourselves. For instance, you might have had a job where you answered a phone once Administrative specialist, right? That's what you put on the resume. You go, I picked up the phone, administrative specialist. Some of you might have rebut- rebooted someone's computer, IT support champion. I don't know, whatever you call that. Um, some of you listened to someone complain once and you became a customer service guru. Or uh, you might have met someone in the break room, collaboration expert. <laughs> we pad our resume with things and we, we all do it. We all have, uh, and then we also leave out things that we don't want. Like that one time that you worked at that part-time job for six months, but then you got fired, that doesn't make it into your resume, uh, you know, in your adult life. Check out Jesus's resume in his life. If you look in verses three through six, we see a bunch of people who are uh, rejects and outcasts of the religious world of the day and the non-religious world of the day. In verse 3, it says that Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Like pretty much anytime you see a word, a weird wording in Matthew chapter 1, there's something intentional going on to the wording here. And then if you look in chapter 5, we see Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. If you look in verse 6, you'll see that David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Had been Uriah's wife. First of all, there are five women in Jesus' genealogy in a world where that was totally unimportant to your pedigree and religious importance in the day. But Jesus mentions five women in his genealogy, and and Matthew words it in such a way that it, it draws your attention this is the father, this is the father, this is the father. But did you notice this? He's the husband of this woman and of this woman. So all of a sudden we see that there's something weird going on that's meant to make us ask questions. What exactly is the message behind this genealogy, this resume? Jesus mentions gender outsiders. Secondly, These women, two of them, were Gentiles. They were not Jewish. They were not religious people. They weren't brought up in the right kind of like moral, ethical, biblical uh, culture. One of them was a Canaanite and one was a Moabite. Uh, These people, therefore, would not have been allowed in the holy place in the first century uh, and in Old Testament temple worship. They weren't allowed into the the tabernacle or the center of the temple and therefore would have been thought of as unclean. They were spiritually unclean. And yet, Jesus mentions them in his resume. They're racial outsiders. They're gender outsiders. You might even say because they're not Jewish. They're moral outsiders. Look at Tamar. Tamar, for example, in verse 3, it says, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Do you know what happened there? That that was an incestuous act. Tamar tricked her father-in-law to sleeping with her. And they had a baby that was incestuous. Uh, and certainly against the Mosaic law, even though Jesus was actually descended from Perez, not Zerah. Matthew puts both Perez and Zerah in the passage, Judah and Tamar, because he wants to remind you of that entire story. Look at Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho and a Canaanite prostitute of all kinds of prostitutes. And then you get to David. Okay, so then you think, David, finally we get somebody, like, credible here. Like, okay, maybe you read this and you think, okay, you got some people here. Maybe you made some mistakes. Maybe you mentioned a few too many women. Maybe you just forgot who the husbands were, or whatever. But then you think, okay, maybe the point of Matthew 1 is that David and Abraham lend enough credibility that these other people, losers or whatever, they, they are, uh, we can get over that. But that's not the claim because we look at David and think about David's life. In verse 6, Jesse was the father of King David. Oh, King David. And then what does it say? He's the father of Solomon, whose mother was Uriah's wife. Do you guys remember the story from Uriah's wife? doesn't mention her by name. What's the point here? Uriah's wife was Bathsheba. So Uriah is this hero, so good to David. King David comes to prominence, righteous king. And, but he's still, uh, before he uh, ascends to the throne, he's being chased out from King Saul. And these men go out into the wilderness to fight with David, to protect him. And Uriah is one of that small band of men. Uriah risked his life to support the, the potential and kind of help David come to power because they saw that God was behind David's kingship. But Uriah is this hero, and then once Uriah is off to war and David ascends to the throne, then with the men gone, but David still passively staying at home, all of a sudden, one day he sees Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and he falls in love with her. He, uh, he sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. And through the course of events, David tries to kill off, kills off Uriah, this righteous guy, so that he can marry Uriah's wife. What is Matthew's point? He's saying, King David, this guy that you all love, he's got the pedigree, he's got the religious background, he's got the righteousness in terms of a part of his life and his um, moral record. And yet, his, he is the father of Solomon, the, the son of Uriah's wife. What's the point? It doesn't matter your pedigree in God's kingdom the message here, there's something about Jesus that has to make you ask important questions here that says, what does it mean for a righteous king with all the pedigree to be visibly seen as a sinner? Because in that sentence, we're seeing that it's pointing out the fact that uh, he wasn't a righteous king. The person that you're putting your stock in as a Jewish first century reader doesn't have that same pedigree. And then prostitutes are mentioned and Canaanites are mentioned and Your pedigree doesn't matter in the kingdom of God. Secondly, it doesn't matter your high status. You could be a Canaanite prostitute, and you would be someone of whom Jesus is proud to mention in his family. Hebrews chapter 2 says that Jesus, in his death on the cross and him forgiving us of our sins, is not ashamed to call us brethren. That's what Hebrews 2 says. And so if you feel like you're a screw-up, you feel like you don't have the pedigree or the natural intelligence, or you've made too many stupid mistakes, you've, you've destroyed too many lives, or you've destroyed your own life, see yourself in the place of these broken, messed-up people who Jesus is proud to have in his life, so to speak. Or maybe you're a high-functioning person who has strung together a few successes like King David. The message of the gospel that's being uh, given to us in the life of Jesus in this genealogy is that even kings are still moral failures before a perfect and wonderful savior in Jesus Christ. And therefore you are no different than a prostitute. That's the message from Matthew chapter one, that if you're a screw up, God is proud of you. And if you think, you know what? More people need to be like me because uh, I have the right political uh, opinions or I have the right moral opinions or I have the right habits to succeed in life. Jesus is, is pushing down the proud and he's lifting up the hurting and saying all of us should be humbled before the cross, before a holy God, and then be proud of the fact that God knows our name. And if you're here this morning and you can think of a lot of decisions you've made recently or a lot of money you've spent to try and make a name for yourself, to be a big deal, to leave a legacy, to have your name on a plaque or on a building, know that your name is already written. It's already remembered for all of eternity. And pay attention to Matthew 1. None of these names matter if it weren't for Jesus. Like a lot of these obscure names, they wouldn't be written anywhere. They wouldn't be remembered if it weren't for the fact that Jesus says, those kinds of people are welcomed into my kingdom. And now we have them. Otherwise, they'd be forgotten. And the same is true for your name. That through our acceptance in Jesus Christ, we don't have to be about our name. Our name can be forgotten because it's remembered from God. Because he knows us and he'll be with us for eternity. Jesus is the one who rules and reigns as king. Last thing about, um, about Jesus as king. A little bit of application for us. There's a parable that I heard a while back, um, and uh, I'll paraphrase it for you. There once was a king reigning in his court, speaking with his subjects, and a young poor farmer came to visit the king, and he brought a big carrot. And he says, Out of love and respect for you, king, I've brought the best carrot that I'll ever grow, that I've ever grown, and I give it to you as an offering because of my love and respect for you, good king. And the king kindly accepts the carrot, and the man turns to go away. The king stops him and says, because of your great offering, I I see that you're a great farmer, and I have land that I own right next to your farm. I'd like to give it to you so that you could expand your crops and grow even more. Another subject who was in the king's court at the time was a wealthy man, a noble person, and he thought to himself, if the king responds like that to a simple carrot, I wonder how he'd respond if I gave him something even greater. And so a few days later, the nobleman comes in with two horses, and he says to the king, King, I breed and train beautiful horses. Two of these steeds are the greatest horses I've ever uh, bred or ever will breed, and I give them to you, king, because of my love and respect for you. The king kindly accepts the horses, discerning the man's heart, and asks the man to leave. The man was perplexed. The nobleman uh, scoffed at the reaction, and the king noticed, and he says, Let me explain, the king says, that that gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. I think it's a common habit for those of us who hear that God loves us, that he's a king, but that he loves us and he has mercy for us. And every type of person, uh, no matter what your decisions or what your pedigree or what your race or what your background, we're all accepted to a very loving and merciful God. And sometimes we hear that and we think, Oh, God exists on my terms. After all, he came so far to have me. And some of us might implicitly think, I guess I'm just that valuable. I guess I'm just good enough, smart enough, and doggone it, Jesus likes me. Don't get it twisted. God doesn't exist on your time frame. He doesn't exist on your kingdom. He is not here to serve you as king, yet he is loving and merciful. And just like the king in the parable, when we come to God and we say, I want to succeed in life, and I'm willing to do some religious deeds so that you'll answer my prayers, you're bringing God the horse, but you're giving yourself those religious deeds And it's entirely possible, right? Let's not be naive. It's entirely possible for us to become Christian, to stay Christians with our own selfish motives in mind. We say, I'll pray the right prayers. I'll read the right thing. I'll play acoustic guitar in the worship band. No shame to anyone who does play acoustic guitar in the worship band. I'll do all of the right religious deeds and then God will surely give me the kids that I'm praying so hard for or the health that I long for or the beauty or the acceptance from other people. All I'm trying to illustrate for us That is that Jesus is king, he reigns, he's powerful, and doesn't exist on your agenda, and yet he's merciful, loving, and waiting for you to put down your pride enough to submit to his kingdom. And on that day, when you become a Christian to do that, you know that he accepts you, that he knows your name and loves you. Let's wrap up with the third, uh, the third thing that Matthew 1 tells us, that Jesus is the one who blesses. He is the son of Abraham. And we say that Jesus is the one who blesses because in Genesis 22, God gave this Messiah promise that there would be a person to come from the lineage of Abraham that would bless the world. Matthew, I'm sorry, Genesis 22, 18 says, through your offspring... All the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. We get this Abrahamic promise of the Messiah. And then if you fast forward to the New Testament, uh, after Jesus lives, dies on the cross, ascends, uh, resurrects, and ascends into heaven, now in the church age, Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes that Jesus redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ so that by faith, we would receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Paul is just kind of wrapping this whole biblical history thing up in a bow and saying, you know, that promise from Genesis 22, it was made real in Jesus Christ. And now we benefit from that blessing through the indwelling Holy Spirit that kind of lives inside of us, not kind of, that lives inside of us when we live as Christians. Paul is saying Jesus is the truer and better Abraham. He's the truer and better blessing that uh, Abraham's obedience to God gave us. And we're meant to read that verse right now and say, okay, what the heck is a blessing? A blessing is something that's given to someone for their good, it's a provision that's given to someone. That's why you say, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. I'm too blessed to be stressed. Whatever, whenever you say blessed, you're talking about the fact that you have what you need. You're content. Something has been provided to you. And so we're meant to read chapter two, uh, 22, verse 18, that through your offspring, all the world will be blessed, Abraham, because of your obedience. And we got to back up a little bit to see what was Abraham's obedience to God that caused the world to be blessed. In Genesis 22, God says to Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. Speaking of famous first lines, what the heck? That's a crazy line. God himself speaks to Abraham and says, I need you to sacrifice your son. You're supposed to read that verse and go, what kind of God would ask a man to do that? It's your son in a patriarchal society where your sons are huge. They carry on the lineage. They have the, the, the prominence. Your only son, your loved son, and uh, offer him as a burnt offering. So the craziest thing, besides the fact that God asks him to do that, is Abraham says yes. Yes. And so he takes him up early the next morning. Abraham got up, loaded his donkey. The story is very vivid. Uh, On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance where they were to go. And he said to his servants, uh, we need to take, we're going to go worship there. And so he says to his servants, we're going to go there. He takes the fire. He takes the wood. And he says, hey, son, we're going to go sacrifice up on this mountain Carry the wood for your own sacrifice. And then, of course, Isaac is like, wait, what are we going to sacrifice on the top of this mountain? Uh, Shouldn't we bring some sort of lamb with us? And then Abraham says, God will provide, God himself will provide the lamb. And then Isaac's like, okay, I guess. I mean, I'm your dad. I'll just trust you. And then they walk up the mountain. Isaac's going, I don't see any lambs around here. This is kind of a weird uh, situation. They get all the way up there. Where's the lamb? God himself will provide the lamb. And then Abraham pulls out his knife, ready to kill his son, when an angel of the Lord says, stop. You've obeyed God's command. And even in that, we're meant to read it and think, what a weird test for Abraham's obedience. There's a sickening feeling when you read that passage to say, I can't believe he actually grabbed the knife from his pocket and was like, I guess we're doing this before an angel had to stop him. I mean, you'd think that Genesis 2 would have a little bit of hesitancy. They sat around, they camped, they waited for a lamb, they went back down a few times to say anything, God. He pulls it out in obedience. And all of this would be a weird trick by God the Father if it weren't for the fact that he provided a lamb. As soon as the angel of the Lord said, put aside, don't kill your son, he provided a lamb in the thicket, an animal to be sacrificed on that day. So a sacrifice could be made to atone for sin, to pay for sin. But even still, it's a weird request because you're meant to ask what kind of God would ask a father to give his son until Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, son of, oh, Abraham. Jesus provided the lamb. When Jesus dies on the cross, these Old Testament Jewish people said, I get it now. The tension that was created in Genesis 22 that says, who would give up their only son to pay for sin? We see God was willing to provide the lamb and not just a little animal lamb and not just a cute little son like Isaac, who could have been unjustly punished for sin, but the lamb that was slain for our sin. God provided the ultimate sacrifice, the one perfect son, the one beloved son, we read in Matthew 3, with whom God is well pleased. The ultimate loved one perfect son that would torture the heart of the father to lose him was given up for you. Matthew 1 is saying, look at this genealogy, look at some evidence, look at some proof, but understand that every story, even the story of Abraham, whispers the name of Jesus. You need a lamb. You need something to sacrifice for your sin to reconcile you in a relationship with God. God provided the ram. There's so many implications, like how to apply this to close, but I want to just mention to you, I don't know. Like how do we apply how important it is that, we, that Jesus is the truer and better blessing given to us? I can give you a few. By being tied in with Abraham through uh, being Christians, we have a tribe, we have a family. And if you feel like you don't belong By being a descendant and and linked with Jesus, now you have a tribe to belong to. A group of people to grab you arm in arm and say, you're screwed up, I'm screwed up. Uh, We have different levels of status, different cultures that we come to, but all of us are leveled at the expectation to be perfect, but then the good news of God's mercy and love for us. And so if you feel lonely, you have a tribe. And it's an imperfect tribe because it's a bunch of Christians that we call the church. But still, when we find our acceptance collectively in Jesus Christ, then we all find our true belonging in him. And then we live out that belonging in the church as best we can through little small groups and little pancakes and little half-cut donuts and sharing and prayer and singing together. And some of you are bad singers and I can tell because I sit in the front and like it's a messed up messy thing, but you need a tribe and you have the tribe of Abraham through the truer and better Abraham of Jesus and in the church and you belong. We find our acceptance. Uh, we find our righteousness. The book of Hebrews says that Abraham was made righteous because of his faith, and we are made righteous and made right by our faith. And so if you're the kind of person who defends yourself a lot, and maybe your wife or your husband says that, why are you always defending yourself? It's, It's a righteousness issue. And when we come to Christ, we see that we're made righteous. We're made justified before Jesus Christ. And so you don't have to defend yourself. You can be fully flawed and fully forgiven, and that's the joy of living as a Christian. And there's just so many stinking examples of the the truth of the gospel, how we're blessed to be Christians with a Savior who blesses us, that I can't mention them. My encouragement to you is to show up for the rest of the book of Matthew and find out. Look at every verse from every different angle that you can, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, and see, how does this show me good news from God, Jesus, son of David, the king, son of Abraham, the world's blessing, Messiah. Let's pray.